Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a gold, a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. 
Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from them, from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourselves up, yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of His house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see nor hear nor, or know. And the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the finger of the hand, uh, fingers of the hand were sent from Him and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, ufasen. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been found weighed in the balances. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the commandment And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. May God enable us to hear these words and be blessed by them. Well, as you can obviously see, one of the challenges of taking a whole chapter at a time is the, both keeping it in context, but uh, also in, in uh, trying to understand all that is before us. We have in this evening series been looking at Daniel with the purpose of, of understanding a measure of the times in which we now live and seeing how God's Word is able to address us with all the circumstances that are before us. Uh, especially with uh, COVID, with uh, the economic changes that have come and met all the nations of the world, and with the rising anarchy that we are seeing in many cities and nations. Uh, It seems as if COVID has given the opportunity 
uh, for much more chaos to grow out of it. And I was uh, saying this this morning, how interesting it is that whatever rules for COVID that have been instituted under a state of emergency that we are called to follow, even the medical profession has been saying that the threats of racism and social injustice will have more damaging impact upon our society than culture ever will. So the rules don't apply to those protests and gatherings. And, and it's just interesting to see not just the chaos that is out there and visible in our cities, it's interesting to see the chaos and conflict that the ungodly have in just trying to deal with all of this. But as we are going through Daniel, I hope again that you see there's nothing new to this. <laughs> Chaos has always reigned within the world of man and within the nations here on earth. Those that turn away from God, how can they expect their lives to be ordered in wellness and goodness? And, and that's what we're seeing, not just with, with Babylon, but we're seeing that with uh, with Judah, with Israel, that is now in captivity to Babylon. And when we read the Old Testament, just to help some of you understand, whenever we read the Old Testament and we hear these words like Judah, uh, Israel, Jacob, Zion, we are to be thinking not of a, a, of a nation of people. We are to be thinking of the people of God. We are to be thinking of the Israel of God. Those whom He has called forth to exercise that faith in Him and, and to be the church of Christ in this world. To be a people who in the Old Testament time as Israel were to display and exemplify the, in a visible way, the kingdom of God here on earth. Now we know with the coming of Christ, Israel has been replaced with the church. That is now the church's responsibility and goal. However imperfect we do it. We know that God, God's kingdom is not now visibly seen by a nation of people. It is seen by the church which is now in the nations of the world. But like Israel here in Daniel, we the church are in the world. Even though we are not of the world. We find ourselves in many ways, like Israel here in Daniel's time, in captivity under, under the oversight of a godless, and dare I say here in Canada, a pagan government. And how do we conduct ourselves? That's what this is all about.
And whatever you think as you are reading through Daniel, whatever you think Daniel's most important contribution to Babylonian society was, because this is now the third time only under a different king. And even though we read that uh, Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was his father, you have to understand, and history shows this, uh, in their language, they, they didn't have a word for grandfather. But history shows us that Belshazzar was indeed not his, his, uh, first, his son, it was a grandson. And so just bear that in mind when we're reading this. The time has moved on. And whatever you think Daniel's most important contribution was, as he's called once again to interpret things that none of the wise men of Babylon could do, it wasn't his ability to just understand dreams and enigmas and then explain them for kings. It wasn't his ability to calm Nebuchadnezzar in his outbursts of rage or pride. It wasn't his ability to, for a third time, rescue the counselors who were threatened by these megalomaniacs. More than anything, Daniel's contribution, as well as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their contribution was to shine as children of light in a very crooked and perverse generation. They boldly spoke and lived the Word of God in a pagan society. I know many Christians do not mind taking up that witness before our society by, by choosing that quieter approach. I'll, I'll just live a life of godliness before an ungodly world. And, and such godliness certainly is a command of God concerning our faith. It is important to establish a veracity and truth to what we believe. We live out what we believe before this world. But more than our lives, because as much as we think our life of godliness is going to be a wonderful warm testimony to the world around us that there is a God, more has to happen than that. (laughs) It can never replace the need of speaking God's truth, giving testimony to Christ and the Gospel, and saying the very hard things that this world needs to hear in its chaotic condition. And besides that, we know that a life of godliness often isn't well received by a world that is bent on disobeying God. Scripture itself shows us how often the world has responded to people of integrity. Abel. Abel was righteous and served God as righteously as he could with his offerings and with his life. And what happened to him? Cain, who was unrighteous, assaulted, persecuted, killed him. David and Daniel, they were all righteous men, but they were persecuted often because of their righteousness. But it it takes us, doesn't it, right to the Lord Jesus Himself. He was acclaimed the righteous one in His life. 
He was found three times by Pilate. The, the, the completeness and wholeness before men was acclaimed by a judge of the earth. This man has done nothing wrong. And he even knew that it was because of envy that the Jews had conspired to see him killed. They hated the righteous one. And what did the Lord remind us of those who are in Him? What did the Lord remind us of those who by faith have received the glorious covering of that righteousness of our King and Savior? The world will hate you and persecute you. Because it hates and persecutes Christ. So godliness is important, but the truth must be spoken. Our society today even needs to hear God's Word. It needs to hear God's judgment. And it needs to hear God's Gospel. That is how God has chosen to bring people under the humbling conviction of their need of salvation. And so, with Daniel, we join with that duty of having to speak the very hard things to a hard heart. And often, that's what we are doing. Before us is a new chapter. And we have to understand, a lot has happened from the end of verse uh, of, of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king who had conquered all of the nations of the then known world, he is now dead. His grandson is ruling. And, and we're at the point where we can really say it's about 60 years after chapter 1. Okay, that's how much time has elapsed. And, and we are seeing a very different king, though still wrapped up in his pagan culture. He's having a feast, and this feast exposes something about Belshazzar compared to his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I hope you'll forgive me if I get these words a little tongue-tied. But for Belshazzar, life was a party. <laughs> he wasn't about kingdom building, building an empire. He wasn't even about maintaining an empire. One thing you have to understand when you come to those last two verses of this chapter is this very point, that here he is having this great feast while he is surrounded by an enemy that is looking for an opportunity to break down the doors and take over Babylon. That's, what, that's the state of this evening. They're surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. It isn't that all of a sudden after this, oh, we have an enemy at the door. <laughs> They're already there. They've been camped out. One of the things, again, that history shows us is that Babylon was a city that was able to endure a siege for many years. It had running water. It had the ability to sustain itself. It had storehouses of food. So they could just simply wait out an enemy at its gates. We don't know how long the Medes and the Persians were there. But they've been there for a while. 
Babylon is a declining empire, and we already know why it's a declining empire. The dream of chapter 2, that that golden nation was not going to be a kingdom that would live forever. And 60 years after conquering Jerusalem, it has its end. And that silver kingdom of the Medes and Persians takes over. The age of Babylon is ended. And, and when we see that, another thing that stands out, and this is important to carry us through to the rest of this book, is that Daniel is not concerned about ordering things chronologically. He's not even concerned about the history of Israel under the exile and captivity of Babylon. Rather, he is showing the underlying enmity and spiritual conflict that faces the church in every generation. That we are living in a world that is at enmity with our God. And you must understand that. For all the joys and pleasures, dear friends, that we can uh, have and, 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 and experience even in our generation. Don't let it blind you to the fact that this world is at enmity against God. And that we are, as God's church and as God's kingdom, living in a world that hates God. No matter how kind and friendly it's been to us in some measure. And chapter 5 here leads us again to, that, to those Proverbs that we've already highlighted. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Richard Baxter says, when we, uh, when we consider the pride of the heart of man, and when, as we are looking at Nebuchadnezzar and now his, his grandson Belshazzar and very soon in the next chapter when we look at Darius, our own pride shows that we are more kin to the devil and a stranger to God. <laughs> Think about that. Richard Baxter. Our pride just reveals that we're more in relationship with Satan than we are to God. But it is also the Proverbs, Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that proverb is not uh, saying that our righteousness brings us into a right relationship with God. Our righteousness never, ever brings us salvation. It can't. But what that proverb is saying, both for the church and for the nations of the world, is that God takes notice of the excessive, blatant promotion of immorality within a nation. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains. Think of Egypt that sealed in bondage to slavery, God's people. Think of Nineveh and Jonah and Nahum 
when you read those two prophets, which again are about 60 years apart. Think about Babylon, Rome. Think about Canada today. That God knows and sees not just the unrighteousness of a nation, but He takes note of the excessive promotion of immorality. That ought to encourage us. And what again we see in Daniel, and it's been one of the running themes, is that once again, the sovereignty of God is displayed. What a contrast to what we read in chapter 4, where God exercised a measure of mercy in dealing with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, in humbling him. That account is brought forward by Daniel to Belshazzar. Don't you remember? You knew what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. How He humbled him so that Nebuchadnezzar would know that the most high rules among the kingdoms of this world. And you, a king, who saw what happened to your grandfather, you ignored that. And instead of exercising a measure of mercy in the sovereignty of God, he exercises judgment against Belshazzar. Can you fathom these things? I mean, in some ways, what was different about Belshazzar than Nebuchadnezzar? About the only thing we can see, and it comes out here, and I think it's an important thing, is that Belshazzar very blatantly came against the God of heaven. But you take that away. They were both wicked and vile men whose hearts were never subdued to the gracious mercies and forgiveness that God holds out for His people. And even as God raised up Nebuchadnezzar in Habakkuk, you read it, Habakkuk is lamenting, mourning the condition of the church in his day. Israel had become immoral, was conducting themselves as if God was not their God, <laughs> living like the nations around them. And, and, and Habakkuk was saying, God, how long are you going to wait before you show mercy to your people and revive holiness in their midst? And God says, well, Habakkuk, this is what I'm going to do. I'm raising up Nebuchadnezzar who's going to come in, invade Israel, take lay hold of Judah, and lay you to waste and take you off captive. And you, you read Habakkuk and he says, no, God, that's not what I was asking for. <laughs> you can almost hear him pleading with God. How can this be? God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to deal with His kingdom, with His people. Take note of that, dear Christians. Take note of that hope as a church. That if we turn away from God, He will deal with us if we do not return, if we do not hear His calls to repent and to pursue holiness. 
But in even doing that, and even raising up Nebuchadnezzar, he says in Isaiah 47 that he is going to judge Babylon because of their wickedness against his people. Again, who can fathom these things? <laughs> and we think, God, so you raise them up to punish Israel, but you're going to punish them because they're too violent against Israel. Can you fathom the sovereignty of God in those things? I have no answer for you. Other than that, that is God at work for His glory and the good of His church. As hard as that is for us to embrace, that's where we're brought. And the sovereignty of God is being exercised against Belshazzar. And it's being exercised against him because here is a king who blatantly opposes the God of heaven. What is Belshazzar's sin? What has happened in this hall that has made this the defining moment when God comes in and destroys this nation only to allow another wicked and pagan nation to take over? Well, Belshazzar came and blasphemed the name of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood something ominous was before him. When you read in verses 5 and 6, and that, that hand appears with those fingers writing on the wall across from him. His countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him. In, in other words, he, he just became a, a very much a, a, a man afraid for his life, fearing for his life. So much so that he was shaking and couldn't stand his knees were just crumbling before under him. And what was his sin? Well, his sins were, were many. He failed as a wise and good king to learn from the past. He knew that his own grandfather had to be humbled and subdued by God. He saw how quickly one man can be brought to a place where he is nothing more than a beast of the, of the field. And he, uh, he no doubt heard the proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar made in chapter 4 about that honor and reverence that the God of Daniel was to have. And Daniel gives Belshazzar that very history lesson. But you read in, in verse 22 and 23, here, here, here is Belshazzar exposed before God. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart although you knew these things. You knew all of this. And instead you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. To exacerbate his, his failure as a wise and good ruler. We see things that he has done to, to really uh, set himself against the Lord of heaven. He relegated Daniel to the back benches. And even as Daniel is brought before him in verse 13, there's deep overtones of sarcasm toward him. Aren't, aren't you one of those captive slaves my grandfather brought from Judah? 
And you're better than all the soothsayers and astrologers of my kingdom. There is a measure of sarcasm. But also, note, he had to be brought in. He wasn't included with those wise men. Daniel clearly had his position and honor stripped. And with that, Belshazzar's sins increasing come to the high point. As you see in verse 23, as Daniel sets it before him, you have blasphemed the holy articles that speak of Christ. The very vessels that were used in the temple of God to show forth the working of Christ before His coming to the kingdom people of God. The very articles which by their very nation, sorry, by their very nature were emblems and revelations of Jesus Christ were used in idolatrous pagan celebration. God revered that temple for who it spoke of. His Son. And here in drunkenness, and you can imagine all that goes on with these drunken feasts, praising their gods of silver and gold, God comes down and and in that powerful and mighty judgment, He says, not my Son. Again, I think that ought to encourage us, church. He was mocking the power, the glory, and the holiness of God. He was challenging the sovereignty of God. I want you to stop and think, we who have lived in Canada these past five years alone, what we have seen, what has been done by our government in opposing God in our land. I mean, set aside the... uh, Not set aside, but I'm not trying to minimize the injustices of abortion and and the whole maid issue with uh, elderly, uh, terminally ill people seeking to end their life. Think about what has changed as far as the place of conservative religious values go. The gravity of the shaming and persecution and vitriol that gets leveled against God's people because they have not joined the rhetoric of the age concerning immorality. The summer student job program that... that uh, just if you did not sign on saying that you upheld these very principles of the government concerning abortion, women's rights, LGBTQ, uh, uh, gender issues. Think about it in the labels of extremism for our views on morality. How even, even, the current government calling for the resignation of those Christian MPs who would decry abortion and who would challenge the gender inclusiveness agenda of the LGBT community. And they're saying the people who voted this person into office 
need to be rebuked. This man needs to be removed from office. The people were wrong. (laughs) We have that both within our provincial parliament and our federal parliament. And yet we ought to take courage from this. Where we find ourselves helpless and wondering, what is it that we can do to withstand the, the increasing immoral decline of our nation? But even more, what is it that we can do to withstand the increasing persecution and shaming that is leveled to those who are striving to uphold the name of God in our generation? While well, we hear these words, that God knows and sees when the glory and the name of His Son is blasphemed by the nations. And He will come and judge those nations. And inasmuch as God has raised up such a one to be our Prime Minister in such a day, inasmuch as we have one who, who opposes the true religion. And that is, in some measure, a judgment against the church, a time of bringing forth a purification of the church in this generation. God is, as He was with Babylon, ready to deal with such a nation that opposes the glory of His Son. He may wait 60 years, but He's not blind to these things. We understand the truth of Scripture. And Paul makes this point in Galatians. God is not mocked. (laughs) Even though we see His name being mocked. Even though we see His glory being shunned and blasphemed. He is not mocked in the sense that He in His sovereignty, power, and glory is not turning a blind eye to these things, but ever prepared to bring forth His judgment. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you shall reap. But I remind you again, dear congregation, dear people of God, that that truth and that point was first made not to pagan, arrogant, godless rulers. It was made to the church, to us. Because as we look at these things, we have to step back and remember that the very thing that Belshazzar is being judged for in this chapter was the very thing that brought about the destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple. Because they too had used the holy things that spoke of Christ for the prospering of paganism and adultery in their midst. What a warning to the church today that thinks that thinks that the way that we can draw people into our midst, the way that we can be at peace with our current society and culture, the way that we can be warm and welcoming to the people all around us who are without God and without hope, the way that we can do this is to embrace their ideals and to bring into our midst their perspectives of who we are as human beings 
and what we can do with life and how we view God. You see, God is not mocked. If we sow to our our culture and society, if we embrace what they are offering, we are turning away from the holiness that God has called us to. And God will not be mocked. We will sow what we reap. God came against Belshazzar. Again, it's it's the thing about these words. God came against Belshazzar and said, uh, your kingdom has been numbered and finished. You've been weighed and found wanting. As a church, we ought to hear these words. We ought to hear these words as they are spoken to us from Psalm 90. Remember Psalm 90? I know some of us, and I often turn to it on birthdays to remind us that, that we are called to live our lives for the glory of God. you know what Psalm 90 says? This is, this is just a portion of it from chapter, Psalm 90, verse 7 to 12. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your countenance. God, there is nothing in my life that is hidden from you. You see everything. And I am terrified by that knowledge that you are going to bring all of these things that I keep hidden from you on display in your day of judgment. And it will be seen. What a wretched man I am. The days of our lives are what? Seventy years. If by reason of strength, eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for soon it is cut off and we fly away. And who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. We understand God in His holiness hates evil. We understand, as Habakkuk would say in relation to the life of Daniel, that God is of purer eyes than to behold wickedness. We understand sin cannot abide in the presence of God. And knowing these things, we ought to be on our knees and saying to God, Oh, forgive me. Forgive me. That there ought not to be a day in our lives, dear people, where we aren't pleading the blood of Jesus to wash and cleanse us. To acknowledge our sins before God. Not to be frivolous with our lives. Because what's the last line of that portion of Psalm 90? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. And what's that next line? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us, God. Teach us to see our days in the presence of Your glory and holiness. Because You've numbered them. And He has. It's always the warning to the young people. Because we, once we reach a certain age in our life, whether it's 70 or 80, we begin to realize that there's we're, we're, we're so close to death. 
We think then we are going to be numbering our days, but no. As young people growing up, especially as covenant young people who understand and who know these things, Belshazzar, you knew all of this, but you didn't humble your heart. We ought to be humbling our hearts, dear people, before God and saying, God, grant us the wisdom in looking at our days in the light and the countenance of Your grace. Teach us to love Your mercy. Remember what the Lord said about Mary who washed His feet when Simon was so critical of Jesus allowing this woman who, who in all appearances was, was a, a prostitute to come in and to perform such a holy exercise upon Him. How could He do that? And remember what Jesus said. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. But to whom much has been forgiven, they love much. And he was speaking about the heart of one who understood what it was to be a sinner before a holy God and ever in need of His mercy. Why do we love our God? Why do we love the Lord Jesus? Because He has looked upon this man and He has forgiven all my sins. Doesn't that inflame your heart with love? Doesn't that inflame your soul to look up to God and just say, what amazing grace has met me. You know these things, dear people. Ask the Lord to teach you to number your days, that you gain a heart of, a heart of wisdom, that you understand His mercy, that you do not live as the fool who carries on in his life thinking he's got the world ahead of him and the length of days before him. Do not be one who has confidence in your flesh but be one who is found in Christ Jesus, not confident in your own righteousness, but in faith, confident in the righteousness that is from God. Do not be weighed and found wanting. Be one who turns to the Lord. Let us pray.